0: This is Overture, the Prelude Podcast. Welcome to the Prelude Podcast. My name is Chris Willis and I'm a principal security researcher here at Prelude.
1: And my name is Sam and I am a security engineer here at Prelude.
0: And today we also have Lewis on the podcast. Lewis has been on the podcast once before, but Lewis, you wanna go ahead and give yours an intro of yourself again?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is gonna be awkward because we just did this like (laughs) 20 minutes ago and for hot to hit record. But yeah, I'm Lewis, Um, I guess TLDR, I do software here. Uh, Not really
0: core security team like the rest of these guys, but I like to build things. We just talked for like a whole 20 minutes without recording. So, <laughs> you're, you're gonna get the the uh, the 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 best of our thoughts in the next like few twenty minutes or so. <laughs> yeah, or the worst. The worst, dude. It could come way worse. But it was a great conversation, and it, like you totally missed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, for this. For this podcast and for the ongoing podcast that we'll have in the future, um, we're sort of changing things up. uh, And uh, so we're going to be talking uh, more about some of the research that we're doing here at Prelude. And uh, this allows us to kind of flesh out some ideas uh, that we have, but also um, sort of be able to get our thoughts out into the world and uh, for others to start thinking about some of the things that we're thinking about as well. Um, and uh, this sort of gets an insight into uh, some of the uh, foundational research we're doing here at Prelude and uh, sort of get the ideas out before they go to, say, white papers and publication. So, um we are today uh, going to be talking about automated security software landscape and uh, all the things that go into that. So basically like our generalized opinion and uh, reliance on tools, uh, specifically like in professional environments, some of the open source tools that are available, um, some of the groups in the industry, they're kind of creating tools and how that looks. Um, And then also going into some of the current standards like attack frameworks and things like that. Um, So without further ado, um, I wanted to first uh, uh, sort of give a general outlook and landscape um, and have everybody kind of talk about that, because I think in a lot of cases, everybody has sort of their generalized opinions on that. And. I think for the most part, uh, after talking for the last 20 minutes, I think we're on sort of the same page. (laughs) Um, But, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I'll start off with my opinion. Um, So I think the the security landscape has changed, and especially in the last decade, especially when it comes to tools and tool design. And I think some of the reason for that has to do with uh, how... Um, cybersecurity has become more mainstream. And so in academia, we now have cybersecurity degrees and there's more cybersecurity certifications. And in general, there's a lot more knowledge uh, to cybersecurity. And so uh, you can kind of go online and and sort of learn certain things. Um, and uh, I think the past... So last decade, we've sort of seen this transition where... Um, Either you you got into security because you're an I.T. professional and you wanted to like you're probably somebody likely in network engineering, um, but you were doing stuff to uh, ensure that your environment was more secure. And so you kind of got into the security landscape and now that it became I.T. security roles. And so you've kind of landed there. And then there's also the people in computer science who said security is really cool. I like breaking things apart. Um, and so like, I'm going to go down that path. And so now we have cybersecurity degree programs and certifications and whatnot. And so because of that, um, I believe that there's a sort of a divide, uh, within the security community where most of the new people coming into the security field, um, are not needing to necessarily know the foundations of say it. Um, So they may not have to deal with things like WSUS and Active Directory and things like that. Uh, And also from the software side, they're not necessarily needing to know how to do programming. And a lot of cybersecurity degree programs at this point don't even teach foundations of programming. And I even think that um, so a lot of academia will go out into the field and ask um, uh, bigger companies what they need in certain people when they get their degree. And I think most of Google, Microsoft, Facebook and whatnot have told academia that they don't want software engineers that do security. They want security engineers that do like SOC analyst roles and things like that. And so um, there's more of a reliance on software being made for security engineers than security engineers coming and saying, I'm going to build this tool. And so it's now like you make it into software like in security because you want to write a tool rather than it being something where like you were a software engineer that got into security and you're like, oh, I want to write a tool. So I think that there's been sort of a stagnation in the last like probably decade where there's less people writing security tools, um, especially like something that is not. I'm going to say more professional grade like tools, not something that's like toys. And we'll kind of talk about that. Um, But there's been more tools that are like there's less tools available today, even though any security engineer, I think, will see it as that there's more tools available, which is true. There is more tools available, but I think that it's more because um, the industry as a whole has gotten bigger and not that there's uh, a like. Like if you if you look back at the like between 2000 and 2010, I think that there was probably more people writing tools in the security space than there are today, where we now have probably six to eight times more people in the security field and now, probably still, maybe that same group uh, is writing software. So it's like that's like one percent, like one or you know, ten percent of the community is still writing tools, whereas it was probably around eighty percent, ninety percent, and the two thousands, twenty tens. But I'd like to hear other people's opinions on that, Sam. You want to? Yeah, so yeah.
1: Yeah. Um- Forgive me if I uh reference anything from our previous conversation or use that for free or something. I, I don't wanna uh I'm trying to free all that memory. So uh yeah. Uh you like you said, you you brought up the kind of the people aspect of it. Um when I when I look at the security um uh automated security landscape, I look at kind of the soft like the software portions of it and how that's changed tremendously throughout the years and how I it's funny cuz you did mention um the how most network engineers were like originally the security guys who kind of turned security guys and it's it's really true cuz i worked with actually a few people uh that were a little older and they were all like in security now but they were all like like crazy uh, cisco like engineers and stuff like network yeah. people and it's actually really funny cuz i think now like if you look at it like a lot of the security people that are coming in are like sys ads now right like they're not the they're not that network person um, which yeah I would never drawn that correlation but it's actually kind of cool to, to look at it in that way because they yeah, were so always like, the front of the just,
0: line you know
1: it, it, yeah it, it is because like I think that's how it started right like the things that started getting attacked originally was like more of the network type stuff yeah. and then now it's like like the actual application layer that's getting attacked on a lot of things mm-hmm Um, but yeah, like, so to the software aspect, I think what we saw was originally a lot of people starting off with vulnerability scanners, which are not what I would consider a super valid way of testing your security, which as we've seen in the past, when people, you know, get hacked and they show their audit logs and like, Hey, we ran this one scanner, everything was good. And we still got hacked, something like that. And it's like. Um, they, we finally, after enough of that kind of started happening, people started realizing that that wasn't good enough for security, that you couldn't just run bone scanners. You actually had to start using like, like the attacker's tools, like Metasploit, like Cobalt Strike, and you had to start testing it in your environment to see if you could get around, um, everything. Right. Cause I mean, when you write a vulnerability scanner, you're essentially checking versions. You're essentially checking maybe some configs, but you're not necessarily actively exploiting that system and figuring out like, okay, well, this is blocked. Let me try this a different way, or this is blocked. Let me um, let me use this uh, let me use this other um, this other surface area to attack the same service, right? Um, so it's it's kind of one of those things. It's like the tools have changed. And the people have needed to change throughout the years. And you started getting to these where you have the SOC people that are in charge of the vulnerability scanning and the security engineers, which are more in charge of the um, red teaming, as you would call it nowadays and things like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of like an industry that's sort of kind of grown up in some degree. Uh, But now we require more people and uh, those people need to be on the front lines instead of like say, software development uh, piece. Um, and so like there is. You know, this the the tier one analyst. It's just like, you know, doing the vulnerability scans or the log, like looking at logs and and sort of get going, like helping the tier two analysts find uh, certain holes that are there in their systems. And then, you know, you have your tier three, tier four analysts. that are just kind of breaking things apart and in a lot of ways um not to go too in depth but like it seems like a tier 1 tier 2 analyst are completely different um in capabilities than a tier 3 tier 4 and so like a tier 2 analyst may never graduate to a tier 3 or tier 4 analyst because i don't even know if you'd want to call it graduate because they're completely different on uh, what skills you need in order to um to go into say that particular uh part of uh SOC like SOC operations. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's quite interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and at the end of when you're uh, started talking, it was, you're talking kind of about like the, the way a lot of software engineer or software development doesn't necessarily, you know, do security type, um, both in their courses and when they're developing things like that, like they may just not care about it. Um, but I think it's one of those things that's like, if if you look at it, right. Like if if you're getting, if you're trying to get hired and you look at security, like you look at like the, the requirements to get into like software development, I rarely do I see like, you need security, uh, you need this security certification or, you know, you need a a bachelor's in, in security or in cybersecurity. Like, like, like no one ever, at least from what I've seen post that as a requirement for a software developer, unless you're, in these uh i have seen like a few job titles which are like a, a software security engineer yeah which software is security
0: like, application security
1: y- yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that seems more um that maybe maybe the, the the whole industry is trying to go that way i don't know whether or not it'll take off
0: yeah i, um, I mean um unfortunately so, uh, software development and computer science in general tends to uh have uh, cybersecurity or just security of uh, software development uh, as an optional thing. And mm-hmm. I don't really see that changing unfortunately because I think that there's well um, there's definitely a quality jump especially in the last 10 years of um, say like software security courses that are offered within academia. Um, there uh, there's tends to be this uh, thing within computer science uh, overall in academia where it's they see security as a problem that can be fixed using automation and um, that there's like it's a it's a tools and software problem and not necessarily a computer science problem um, and um, i I hope that that changes. Um, But uh, from my experience, um, that seems to be the generalized outlook within most computer science professors in academia. And a lot of them, of course, are tend to be on the older side. (laughs) So hopefully they they leave and things change. But um, that seems to have been the outlook. And that's why computer science uh, courses within engineering tend to. Uh, leave out i think a lot of the more core computer science courses that i think are super important like operating systems and algorithms and architecture and uh doing software development a lot of them don't even go through software development which is insane
2: yeah oh, So, sure. i i want to jump in on something that you just said there chris like the Like the kind of poo-pooing of security from like traditional computer science like academia, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack from our team, especially Spencer, with what I'm about to say. Um, I'm I'm going to invoke the (laughs) blockchain word, Uh, but blockchain is basically um, (laughs) like like the whole premise there is being able to operate a secure system out in the open completely exposed to sunlight right and a lot of that is built around and the only way you can actually do that is if you really do take all like the security fundamentals extremely seriously and you start to reduce them into problems that aren't just like mere engineering anymore or like what has typically been the purview of engineering speaking of the difference between computer science and engineering um but like these things are starting to get studied and analyzed and scrutinized in a way that is probably like more typical uh of the things that you would do when you're inventing algorithms in computer science um and like the typical kind of stuff that you do there like and again though i get your point about like maybe the old guys will (laughs) die uh and go away or retire i guess i shouldn't speak to (laughs) (laughs) this one real fast (laughs) Uh, Sorry, guys. Um, But yeah, what I was going to say is uh, like, is it necessarily about people like aging out or is it more about just like the needs of society evolving in a way that all of a sudden we have like a new surface in front of us to actually stress test ideas around that we didn't have before? Right. Like before it was hard. And it, we still have this problem today. Like It can be hard for a lot of people to reason about building secure systems because they don't have a good mental model for how threats actually work. And when the ghost is invisible, it's really hard to actually build um, defenses that yeah. keep the ghosts out. But if you can see them and you can analyze them and you can poke them in a distance, we all have a common knowledge around like what the actual uh, threat vectors are and all that kind of stuff. Um, it becomes a lot easier, right? Like this is is the whole premise behind chaos engineering. Like you can't uh, build a system that is going to be able to tolerate faults without building that system in full view of what the faults actually are going to be. I think like, again, I'll I'll take all the flack in the world for invoking (laughs) the whole blockchain thing. But for what it's worth, and despite all of our mixed and varying opinions around like the whole worth and value of that entire ecosystem as a whole. I think the one thing that it does actually do is gives people a solid reference point for what at least a a good class of um, real security threats and problems that you face when you're actually trying to build something as simple as a distributed ledger um, really confront and need to be taken seriously when you're building secure systems. and You you bring up a
0: good point when you talk about... so maybe I'll get more flack from Spencer. <laughs> um, all about to get flack. <laughs> yeah. They're going to hear this and be like, nope.
2: <laughs> Deleting this um, one, guys.
0: But, you know, blockchain, blockchain and the things around that uh, was when it started, uh, didn't necessarily come from computer science. And um, and so, like, the way that was built up and the way that's like that industry has sort of happened has been in a lot of cases, the same as security has kind of happened. Um, And they're they're, like, the correlations are, are very um, interestingly the similar. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: yeah. Yeah. So so The thing that, that gets me right. Is that like, crypto has given blockchain a very bad rap right like that's the thing is like people like a lot of people tend to just think that they're the exact same thing and they're not right like like blockchain the technology as Lewis was talking about underneath it with distributed systems and trying to figure out you know uh, a state of trust between like what's what's actually happening on this this network is legitimately a, a pretty cool I mean in my opinion it's a pretty cool uh, white paper that was originally written on it right and it's like um, a lot of people just kind of disregarded the blockchain portion of it and started seeing money and all that crap. I and mean, it kind of just ruined everything for everyone. But I, I think I, I'm like one of those people that thinks blockchain does have a good security aspect to it, right? Like like being able to do certain things like with logging on systems to ensure that things happened in a certain uh, order and being able to be like, hey, you know, th- this this uh, order of events was modified right and, and like blockchain tries to solve that type of problems so like the distributed ledger and everything like is definitely uh, a i think more uh, research needs to go into it but I, I think you'll you'll still see it in in security products it's just the like i said that the whole cryptocurrency abstraction that lays on top of blockchain just kind of you know whatever yeah <laughs> like, it's like it's just like it's sad kind of because like like the, like the technology yeah. itself underneath was like a pretty cool like uh, but yeah um I'll get my flack as well right I might as well just get
2: I'll you know,
1: <laughs> get
0: flack um, but next it, next it, thing is uh nft edrs <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, no, so so the, the the attackers actually sell nfts for their malware right so you yeah. can only use that mal- <laughs> your unique malware um and it's, it's a whole uh, underground market for it. Yeah, no, I... It, and I mean, it's funny because we talked about distributed systems and I'm, I'm not going to let Lewis get off the hook without talking about his background in distributed systems. Um, coming from the gaming industry and stuff, like when you had worked there before, what were some of like... What was the security products? Like, what did you guys do for um, managing or testing security um, in, in that environment?
2: Um, like my general thing is like everything I've done has boiled down to having to simulate the world in my head constantly. Um, when I was younger, that was a lot easier, but I would still come home from work every day. feeling like I just ran like 20 mile marathons and stuff like that. Cause like you have to stress a lot of working memory and hold a lot of stuff in your head at once in order to actually do this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, like long story short to answer your question about like how we actually tested this stuff. Um, it was Mm -hmm. difficult like a lot of it was like manual brute force kind of stuff. And had we had like better fuzzers and things like that, that uh, we didn't really have access to back then, or at least like the kind of specialized kind of things that we were using, didn't really have access to back then. Um, It made... Uh, this is kind of like the same, the same sort of thing that we see, still see today is like you have to kind of invent the way to see what you're doing and, and like to see what's actually working. Right. Like this may sound dumb to someone who's used to like test driven development and things like that, where like half the whole thing is like setting up the test harness in the first place. And that really steers development. But I think like that's the key of what we're trying to get to, because like there were some things when I was like, like, Backfill on conversation because it was in the first 20 minutes. I didn't get recorded <laughs> and then spent uh, and then Sam just like magically invoked it and like someone didn't know <laughs> <from> where. Um, <laughs> I used to work in gaming and like I really cut my teeth there. Uh, my first real exposure to building systems was like getting thrown in the deep end and having to build distributed system for an MMO where like everything was like time space complexity and deal with concurrency across multiple nodes on a machine. And I made that extra fun for, for myself because like instead of just using. Like locks and trying to do stuff sanely that way. Um, I kind of got my rocks off trying to do things locklessly. So everything is like this atomic state machine that you have to basically simulate every single interleave constantly all the time and make sure you're not running into ABA like issues and stuff like that all over the place, which is kind of like name of the game when you're doing, I guess, like a lot of distributed systems in general. Um, cash issues boiled down to ABA kind of ish, like fundamental, uh, lacks of reasoning and dealing around. Um, but yeah, what I was going to say is like, after that I got thrown into building security pipeline for one of the games we were shipping, um, where my whole thing was like, yo, make sure that people can't hack cheat or, um, like pirate us. Right. And like, there's a whole bunch of different things that go into each of those different things. Um, Some of the things is blind trust that you assume they work. Like a lot of our anti piracy mechanisms, like, yeah, like if we just make this like block of code require that like some random scan over a bunch of other stuff uh, creates an MD5 that gives like jumps you into the right other block when you actually go and do your execution. Um, Stuff like that was hard to really test for and make sure it was actually working reliably. Other stuff, on the other hand, where we did actually did have versions of fuzzers um, that help make it easy to reason about problems like memory training, for instance, right? Like one of the things in games is like, yeah, you have like your health and ammo somewhere in memory. And as like a little kid trying to like just hack infinite health and ammo, like it's pretty easy to just like pause the game, scan the memory, see where the number is, pause the game, scan the memory, see where the updated number is with the new ammo check and all that kind of stuff like that will get you down to a very few spots in memory, like really, really quickly. Um, And like being able to simulate that, even just like visualize how that attack happens. Like it's a pretty easy transition there. It's like, oh, if I want to get around that, I just like shuffle my stuff around in memory, break up like the high low bits of the numbers, all that kind of stuff. And like, like, there's a whole number of different things you can do to get around the issue. But like the main thing, going back to the blockchain thing, without having um, a clear artifact or a clear reference of what's actually happening when the threat happens, when the attack happens, um, it's there is a very high demand on your working mental capacity to try and simulate the attacks as ghosts. And like ghosts are hard. They're fun, Mm -hmm. but they're hard.
1: Yeah. I know. I mean, it's funny because the, the differences in finding um, bugs in code and finding bugs in time is right. Like is is extremely different. And, and, and I don't know, That's part of my reason why, like, if you look at like finding an automated scanner or an automated, like scanner that can deal with uh, race conditions, things like that is by far one of the hardest things that you'll do. Right. Because that, scanner in itself is also has its own timing that it has to deal with when it's going through and and trying to find like oh yeah like you can do static code analysis but it's not going to show up anything it's it's you know it's one in a million times when this happens before this happens and bam now there's a security issue
2: but yeah yeah i mean like race conditions in general are difficult to deal with like this is kind of like the one of the like problems with vulnerability scanners too. It's a problem of like false Mm -hmm. negatives, right? Just because you can't simulate, uh, I guess I should take this another way. Like there's multiple ways to actually deal with the problem. Um, One of the ways for dealing with the race condition thing is you just have like run the whole thing in multiple threads, as many threads as you want and just like do it like hundreds of thousands of times, or whatever, and see if you actually can surface any sort of race condition or like a data integrity error or anything like that that would point to a race condition existing somewhere. Um, a lot of that boils down to lock, right? Uh, the other way you do it is like you inject specific faults in like all the different spots where your threads can cross over and you simulate that. You don't even have to actually run it, but you can... <laughs> I <laughs> Depends what you're looking at. Um, you can just actually simulate all the possible interleaves and do the like analysis that way. The problem is like you have these crazy complete combinatorial explosions when you're actually trying to uh, count the state when you have all these different threads that are like taking all these different routes through the actual program and trying to track that at the same time. I I don't have any sort of like good war stories around. Like, mean, there's, there's tons of like incredible tools out there, incredible projects that battle test a lot of like the big distributed databases that we all depend on to like make sure financial transactions are safe and stuff like that. Um, Jepsen, uh is a, it's a, if you go search for Jepson on Google, you'll see like a bunch of like really, really good stress tests of uh, um, like, like all the big, name distributed databases and like just big big data kind of platforms out there like he does this full battery full analysis of like everything ground up and like it's really principled does a lot of stuff where it just takes a lot of just like examining every possible path and like analyzing like where am i actually getting things falling down but it's extremely computationally expensive yeah Yeah. it's exhaustive um the amount of hardware that goes into that is like kind of insane so to expect a normal user when they're building like their Little Django app to take that stuff in mind or keep that stuff in mind and keep the, the facilities and the ability to actually reasonable things like that. Like, it, I understand it is an ask, but like, it's also fun at the same time. So, so one last Big thing data. Like before, we go, don't know.
1: before we go too far off course, I, I do want maybe you can answer this for all the gamers or anybody who's actually listening to this <laughs> is why is it in testing for a multiplayer game? Everything's fine, but the second it gets released.
0: <laughs> 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 humans <laughs> because servers crash dude right,
1: right, right. So like, yeah, but that's the thing right like is it, is it a lack of testing like how because that in itself right is like kind of like a security thing right like if I wanted like Dawson's yeah. uh, servers and stuff is a thing right so it's like like is it a lack yeah. of testing is it a lack of throughput like like what is what occurs in that area to where hey this people are like yeah the game went gold everything's good day one bam day one multiplayer down like pretty much here,
2: yeah, I mean, like, there's any number of reasons stuff like that can happen, right? Like the most obvious one is though, like if you look at a game company, like they're gonna have a staff of like, I don't know, depending on the project, like let's say up to two hundred uh, engineers and like graphics artists and all that kind of stuff and designers and all everything working on the game. plus maybe like a team of ten QA people around that, something like that. Um, That's not a lot of people to actually challenge your network infrastructure, right? Um, You can do, obviously, like, bigger betas and stuff like that. You can run bots against infrastructure and try and load test things in certain ways. But, like, how representative is that stuff of reality? You know? Uh, It's it's a challenge. And, like, it's not just even that. It's also... um, sometimes software just like ships badly. Like you could stamp bad assets on your gold image. And like, for some reason no one caught it. And then just some weird thing happened where like this bad, I don't know, thing just made its way into like your SIM that's running all like your, your, like your network stuff. Um, like It's like the ways that things can fail are always myriad. Right. And like that's what it really boils down to. Especially when you have like a big day one release when you have like a flood of a million teenagers all mm-hmm. eating a machine at the same or a cluster at the same time. Like it's really difficult
0: to prepare <laughs> for stuff like that. Humans.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, I I, I I would say they, they're they what they should have done was just hire you because I swear you be
0: able to pick up on <laughs> nah, No, he wouldn't more be radical. here, Sam. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> He's just quite the humble one. He can spot
1: any conditions and everything like uh, prior to it hitting production most of the time.
2: Well, we do JavaScript, dude. JavaScript's asynchrony model is trivial, so like, there's not too much to read into yeah. that. It, it's,
1: yeah, it's one of those things It's like... Uh, it, it, we have talked about in the last uh, twenty minutes was uh, that like a lot of security doesn't ever really talk about those type of things, right? Like we're we're typically focused on things that are viewable, things that you can find by reading code, not necessarily things that are outside of the code. Yeah.
0: yeah. So to kind of get us back on track here,
2: <laughs> <laughs> did we take a tangent?
0: Um, one of the things. Um, that I think we kind of talked about and alluded to was this, uh, reliance on tools that security people have. But most of these tools, uh, tend to be, um, to use Lewis's words to some degree, toys, <laughs> They're toys. Don't just say about <laughs> me, man. I didn't say anything. Not here at least. Um, and so, um, especially within the red team space, uh, there's this reliance on tools to do red team related tasking. And a lot of these tend to be things that for lack of better word is that they, the space uh, currently is filled with a lot of different tools that do the same thing, but have like one to two specializations and uh, they are relied on Uh, From the professional standpoint, and there's only maybe a handful of what we would consider professional grade red team tools that are available today. Um, But even those tools, uh, the difference between gots and cots and open source is so vastly different um, that like from the got like from the government space of creating uh, tools for the government uh, what they would consider, say, C 2s is vastly different from say the red team C two, um, to where things like what red team would consider some of the best tools, like, um, I don't know, uh, like
1: Cobalt uh, Strike, Cobalt Strike
0: yeah, they, yeah. they but, like, there's like this, you know, notion that Cobalt Strike is amazing, and then you go into the government space and you're like, holy smokes, this is. Nowhere yeah. close until you realize it can't do much on Linux, and yeah, based on <laughs> yeah.
1: I had that I had that um, epiphany uh, happening when it was uh, when I I like the first time I used it I was like super excited and then I was like oh crap um, yeah well that's, uh, I'm doing Linux stuff right now so but like it's funny <laughs> that you that you brought up the like toys versus tools things and and the funny thing is is that I don't think that this is a specific thing for the actual software entity itself it's whose hands it's in when it's being used. Right. It's like one of those things, right? Like if I hand my kid a screwdriver and he's like playing with it, right. To him, it's a toy. But if I'm using a screwdriver, it's a tool, right? Like if I'm going to yeah. use a, I'm going to pull out a screwdriver. I'm going to use it as a tool. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with like, even like, like something as basic as like Metasploit, right. It's like, you look at how many people like, yeah, I know how to use Metasploit, but how many of those people know how to write a module on Metasploit? Right. Like, right. And, and that's the big difference in a lot of that is, I believe all software, if you go through enough training and everything, can be a tool um, if you know how to use it. If you use it the right way, uh, it, it, but you have to. It, that occurs when you start looking at that thing as a deeper, as as at a deeper level, right? Then that just kind of surface area. And I know David talks about this a lot, like you know the button mate uh, button makers versus button pusher type thing, right. and it's like like. it's funny because uh not to name uh any things in particular but there's there's certain uh certifications and stuff government-wise that people go through to use certain things um and the funny part is is like i had never wanted to go through anything like that like they had asked and i was like nope never like i don't want to do that i want to build it right like i want to build that tool i don't want to i don't want to be a a tool god or a tool master and i because in in that case it's like like you can know if you know how to use the product like to the best of like to, to its full potential then it's cool but it doesn't necessarily translate a lot to it and that's the thing with like security engineers i think that we, like full circle is like the security engineers a lot of them tend to be those those not, I don't want to say toys because that's that's kind of messed up but it, essentially they're not looking at the products the ways that they don't use the product in the way that it was necessarily designed they use it strictly just to like throw this attack or to yeah. do things like that
0: well so I think I what I mean by tool or, or toys within the tool space has been more the fact that like there's people that are in the software development space within security which as we just you know, talked about. There's not many of them, and the problem tends to be that they create something, and it's there, and they never iterate on that. And so <laughs> it's like it it comes out. They you like in you know everybody in the security space either you know if they tend to get traction they like it or whatever. It's still something where it just stays in like the ether, right? It never really gets iterated on, and it's there. And a lot of times, I think. Uh, If we look at certain tools and because they do specializations, like one thing, like they might do one thing really well, like uh, evading EDR or something like that. Right. They do that one thing extremely well. And then everything else is either like the same or worse than other tools. Um, And that. Many I I think what ends up happening (laughs) is that um, somebody wants to create a tool or they want to. Uh, do something within a tool. They can't do that. And so they're like, well, I can do it better and I'll write, it. I'll write something new, right? And we continuously have this problem and this is why we have like a huge amount of C2s that are available in the open source. Uh, but the you have to choose which C2 you're going to use for this specific task because, you know, this C2 does one thing better than the other instead of it being a situation where... You have one C2 platform or just a few C2 platforms that people contribute to. There's less there's not many people in the computer, uh, the the security community uh, within this space that says, OK, I want to do this specific thing real like really well and I know how to do that. So let me contribute to a said tool that will like I can do that with instead. Uh, either because of legacy reasons or because uh, they feel like they can do it better or because they don't know that that tool is available or whatever vast majority of reasons there are. There tends to be this notion where, well, it tends to be in this industry that we have a lot of tools that do similar tasking with one or two things that do something really well instead of being, I guess uh, something where we will we've, decided yes this is a good platform and let me go and and write something towards it like a good example is like pocs right like sam i know you've been looking at cves and pocs they're all different Mm -hmm. (laughs) nobody writes in like they might write it for c or whatever but nobody's like they're not taking that and then writing um, it into say a ttp and actually like executing it like the person who's writing the poc right like they just give you the poc and say hey here you go right they don't it do may, anything may else with that work. <laughs> right yeah that may or may not work right but like they're not they're not giving it to, to somebody to actually say hey here you go now run it right like they're, they're like there's tools available i mean prelude can do that right and mm-hmm. people contribute to it not to like toot our own horn but like there's other tools that do that as well and yet still like the poc community tends to just give out c binaries and say here you go and <laughs> and hopefully you know how to run it and that you know what hey, you're doing they put a lot of time into the ascii art yeah just yeah yeah <laughs> that
1: was really funny. it's like POC <laughs> and it's like like 95 lines is ascii art and then the rest is like just like a few lines of code and you're like oh okay uh, thank you for the ask I'll make sure that
0: I, Yeah, and um, here's these crazy so parameters that you need to know that maybe we only told you half of them
1: yeah <laughs> it, 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 and like you said I think that does definitely come to like this the standardization type thing that like there's not really like it's funny because on the vulnerability side and like um, I'm trying to think of the, it's not what do the the there was a, a cve like a, they were trying to make a misp misp i think was the software that was used to like a standardized vulnerability format and everything so that you could go through and all all um and like in from different sources and everything like that um and, and it's funny because like mentioning like like gots like right? Government off the shelf type stuff, um, compared to like commercial and open source is like, I think one of the coolest, uh, the coolest way to see like the stuff that is in like government stuff is like Ghidra, right? Like as when Ghidra came out and like, if you look at the the whole thing before, um, before Ghidra came out, there was only a few players, right? And, and there's like extremely expensive, there's through open source, like uh, Radare, things like that. But then you've got to use the terminal. <laughs> Radare
0: um, that wasn't really for reverse engineers that ended up just yeah. being that. And then there was Binary Ninja that was sort of coming yeah. up because they had written the GOT stuff. And then there was Ida, which no one wanted to use. And it was so expensive that people would try desperately to uh, get uh, free versions of it <laughs> because use they Giedra
1: wanted to, to get Kedra or use, uh, use IDA to get IDA. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, even the, 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 uh, players that would do reverse engineering for professional use would still, uh, find, try to find, uh, free versions of IDA with, um, hex rays. <laughs> and then China versions came out and, you know, <laughs> spiral.
1: Like you said, like, when when Ghidra came out, right, I thought it was really cool to see like the security. Well, I mean, I don't want to call them the security, the reverse engineer community because they are kind of different in in what they're doing. But they were. It's funny because everybody was like super uh, skeptical at first, like, oh my gosh, NSA released this stuff, right? Yeah. Like, oh, let's make sure. But now, like, if you look, like a lot of like reverse engineering write ups and stuff are using Ghidra, right. right? Like they're they're going to that standardized format. And like, like you said, like bringing it back to like how like POCs are just kind of thrown out there, like hey, Python, C, whatever. Um, I think that is something that like drew me to operator in general was that there was like, it was like a framework, right? Like I didn't, I could use whatever executor, I could use all that. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know, like security people like their tools right like they like yeah. what they like because they have to rely very, on them right? right like yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean it's funny that you bring up ghidra because like ghidra like in a lot of ways from the government side like that should be considered like a huge success and oh yeah i, I don't, i don't know how it's considered um and and how the nsa looks at it but i mean I'm, i remember the original idea for trying to release it open source and that was the fact that the majority of people that would go through training knew how to use Ida. And that's the only thing they wanted to use. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. again, it goes back to tool reliance. Like their the reliance on Ida was so high that even though they had a separate tool that did what the, like essentially it did 90 percent of what Ida could do. But uh, the, mm-hmm. that last 10 percent, they would just refused to use Ghidra because the last 10% was never there. Um, and then um, th- there's the whole piece of, well, now we want people to under- like know Gator coming in, so we'll open source it. And then there was also like trying to get that last 10%. And I think they did that before they even pushed the tool out. <laughs> uh, they got to that 10% before they even open sourced it. And then now, you know, I hope that uh, this is going off on a tangent uh but i hope that uh (laughs) there's the government would be willing to uh push more and more of the plugins that are not available oh yeah yeah yeah
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, i'm sure you know (laughs) that uh some of the plugins are quite legit um and uh unfortunately they're just not available um but uh yeah, it would be really awesome because I think that that would just push the industry forward and uh, would sort of um, like if if any of the tools have improved in the last 10 years, it has been the binary tools and a lot of that has to do with like things like CGC. And um, I think a lot of the original players that created things like Ghidra are now off making their own companies and doing cool stuff, but don't want to get too much on a tangent there. <laughs> <laughs> I might know that space a little, little too much.
1: <laughs> All of our energy went into the first twenty minutes, but <laughs> now you can work again. Get...
0: <laughs> tangent? Yeah. What are you talking about, <laughs> man? Um, So I think the other piece that uh, I kind of want to talk about in uh, this tool thing is is like some of the groups. Um, I won't name any of the groups, but I think that there's quite a few. There's like three or four or five of the main like known groups that tend to be in the C2 and adversary emulation space. Um, And one of the annoying things I think for me When looking at these groups is like it always seems to be like these these groups are the ones that are really pushing out tools and like they share ideas and things like that but again they they're never like organized like they don't they don't go and say okay we have this we have this tool that we really like that someone created within our group and now let's go and like push new things to it uh, and and really share ideas in that space. Like, I mean, there is some groups that tend to be a little bit more organized than others. Uh, but like if you go on, you know, GitHub and you look at C2 tools, you'll see the same groups and uh, with different C2 tools that are down at the bottom and says, hey, if you want to know more about this tool, go to this discord group. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. why? Like, there's one in particular that sticks in my mind. And it's just like. They must have been on like eight of the, you know, 40 tools that I looked at eight or nine. And it's like, did any of you guys like, you know, organize to just create one tool that does like your nine or 10 things that these tools are like known for? Just put them all in one, you know, group and just don't do that. And it's really annoying. (laughs) Are you sure you're not allowed Uh, to name names, man? I mean, I would, uh, I'm sure our <laughs> legal department would hate that. <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it's, it's true. Like, like, you know, these groups, like they have so much potential because like they're, they're, they're organized enough to have a discord group or slack group or whatever. Um, and I think, uh, I, I know that some of these groups listen to our podcast and I'm hoping that's, that they'll know like, oh yeah, like. some of the problems that we have within our groups or maybe not recognizing that they have that issue
1: (laughs) a lot of that a lot of that is like the planning as well right the planning's jacked up and when they're doing stuff like they might meet and then bam they come out like hey let's do this tool okay they do a tool right yeah and what they should have done was started building that like framework right like that harness that can put all of those those capabilities into it and use it in like a fluent manner. Um, and, and I think that goes into like, kind of like just pure, like leadership stuff, right? Like, believe me, I like look at my GitHub, it's very similar, right? Like before I got here, like it was legitimately like, oh, well today I'm writing this fuzzing thing. Oh, tomorrow I'm writing this, uh, I tried to write a C2 thing, right? Like I, like I've done a lot of stuff on that, my, on my GitHub stuff. And it's just like, like leadership is a lot to come to. And when you get like leadership that knows what they're doing, right. Like I'm not going to mention any names, but David is a good leader, right? Like he has that all planned out. Right. Like I, like it's, it's one of those things that's like, I think those groups probably could be successful and everything, but they would have to have somebody who, you know, has that, that ability to look at like the hundred view and the technical knowledge to make it happen all at the same time, which is very hard to find. That's like a unicorn, right? Like in in this industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly within these groups, there's influencers and stuff like that. I'm not sure that some of these groups would want leadership because then that like creates onus (laughs) that you're like, nobody's doing anything bad. (laughs) That's how you get like anonymous and crap like that. Um, (laughs) but like I, I, I do think that, um, in these groups, there should be some level of like, clearly their groups are being formed to learn certain things. And sure. Like if you're wanting to learn how to write C2s, then you should go out and write a basic C2, right? Like don't, don't like all right well now i need to go look for a tool that i can like enhance or whatever but at the same time once you get to that point where you're just like yes like i know how to do this exact thing extremely well don't go and make a new c2 like go and like do like a frame like put it within a framework and actually make it really good that people will like so then you don't have to like you know as a red teamer like i'm not a red teamer uh, like i'll say that straight up like i'm not a red teamer I, like i don't I'm not sure how their process go but i guarantee you there's no way that you can be a red teamer today and not like use like 90 different tools because yeah, I mean, like, you know I everything have my own distro yeah
1: know, it's like out, right like build a distro with all my tools on it and then use that
0: yeah or like using cali and then hopefully that tool tools available or whatever <laughs> you know it's like there's that's some of the uh, the things I think that like enhance the capabilities of the tools that are existing to make them better. And that's the whole reason. Like I don't think in general terms, like cobalt strike is like cobalt strike has cobalt strike is the, the reason why it's considered one of the best tools in the C2 game today is because they've been around for 20 something odd years, right? Like, it, that's that's the reason <laughs> um, it's expensive. It's an expensive tool like red teamers. I know like live and breathe by it. But when it, you know it's of the day it's been around for a really long time. It's been iterated on and like if there was a hive mind that took a lot of the this framework approach uh, like a lot of these groups are like. Take take that approach of I want one tool that does like all of the things that everybody's creating and, and push it up and, and make it a better tool. Um, so I don't have to have 20 tools in my disposal, just, dis, just, dis, you know, disposal. And like from a red team standpoint, I don't really think like, you know, from the government standpoint, like secure, uh, like signature and things like that matter. But I'm not sure that that's the case when it comes to the red team environment. Um, I don't know, but <laughs> um, like I could see that being a signature problem, but at the same time, like what does the red team like care yeah. about signatures?
1: It is like, so yeah, attribution I think, and, and that's the thing that you're going to get with like any sort of like expecting the government to release anything like that, right? Is that attribution thing? Yeah, because it, right, like a lot of times you might go out of your way to make it look like attribution like And it's one of those things that's like, once you release that, granted, if you look at it in the large, like, like, pack, like, like strategic theme of things, if you did release it, then you would have,
0: uh, man, have everybody uh, using like, that, right? Using, <laughs> using. Yeah, like,
1: like, oh, yeah, no, it wasn't us. It was some random guy. No,
0: no. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, look at it from the strategic point of view, right? Like get it out there fast enough then uh, you
0: will fully have it. So we're hitting up on time here, but I think this is a great overall conversation about some of the research we're currently looking into here at Prelude as a whole and a little bit of a side tangent in some places, but interesting conversation nonetheless. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of Overture, the Prelude podcast. We will be again uh, back again next week for another episode of Overture, where we'll be talking about more of some of the research topics we're looking into. If you like this podcast, please consider giving us a like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our newest episodes. Overture is distributed on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, our blog at feed.prelude.org, and on YouTube. So we'll see you again next week. Till then, Prelude out.